BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Heart of Healthcare podcast. Today, I'm talking to Sammy Inkinen, who is the founder and CEO of Verda Health, the first company with the treatment to reverse type 2 diabetes without surgery. Verda Health has raised over $360 million and is valued at $2 billion. Previously, Sammy was the co-founder of the leading online real estate app, Trulia, serving as its COO and president and board member until its IPO and eventual sale to Zillow. He has operated companies through the 2000 downturn and the Great Recession and has valuable insights on what it takes to weather economic uncertainty as a leader, which is our topic today. Sammy, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me and aging me with those references to year 2000. (laughs) As our wise elder, can you know, just kidding, why don't we start before we kind of dive in on on what's happening and how you kind of see your job as a leader changing through these times, can you just give us um, some color on your background and what ultimately led you to the work that you do today in healthcare? Yeah, sure. Well, going back to once upon a time, so I was born and raised in Finland, grew up on a farm, Uh, parents didn't even go to high school, so I didn't have a lot of like role models, what to do in life professionally, uh, so to speak. Uh, but I was always pretty good at sort of physics and math. And that kind of pulled me out of the farm and studied physics, in fact, and started my career in a nuclear power plant, uh, which is my only scientific claim <laughs> to fame, I guess. And then <laughs> in parallel, I somehow I got into computers very early, even when I was living on a farm. And that has kind of been my hammer, if you will or the tool that I've used most of my life professionally, so software and technology. And then long story short, I came to America 2003. So I've now been here for almost 20 years. And as, as you mentioned in your intro, I got lucky that I was able to sort of follow and execute my immigrant and entrepreneur's dream in that we started a company called Truly, and it was an amazing 10-year journey from about 2004 until... 2014 for me. Um, so that was an amazing journey. But anyway, so now I'm running a healthcare company, Verta Health. So that kind of came about pretty accidentally. I was not looking for starting another company. And very, very brief of what happened to me was that I always thought I'm the last person to deal with type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes because I was very athletic and doing a lot of sports and racing triathlons and in fact, won the world championships as an amateur in, in triathlon. But despite that, I discovered that I was actually on my way to becoming type 2 diabetic and I was already pre-diabetic. This was 2011, 2012. And that kind of pulled me into this whole world of metabolic health and diabetes and 
met with a bunch of scientists who kind of opened my eyes to what could be done and the disease would be reversible. And I kind of came out of quasi-retirement. <laughs> I've questioned that decision a few times afterwards, but mm, I thought, yes. wait a second, <laughs> if you can address type 2 diabetes at scale, you know, somebody should win a Nobel Prize for that. So it just felt like it is wor work worth doing. Mm. And here I am, I guess, seven, eight years later since we started Berta. And is the Nobel Prize your goal? Is that the end goal? <laughs> well, I, I'm definitely driven by just impact, human impact, not accolades yeah. or anything, but it's kind of like an interesting North Star to think about that. If you do something like this, you know, somebody should receive that. It doesn't need to be anybody from Berta, actually. Yeah. And are you guys US-based, but uh, going global? Currently, exclusively treating patients in the United States only, but the plan certainly mm -hmm. is to go outside. It's just always okay. this question of when. Yeah. There's a lot of complexities when you have sure. a, a growth company, <laughs> what not to do yeah. and what to do. Okay. So what's more messed up in the US, our real estate industry or our healthcare industry? It's very simple, healthcare. Okay. And real estate has has a lot of flaws, I think, as well. Yeah, I think you could say that. Well, I will say I, I think the flaws and the frustrations as a consumer and observer certainly pulled me and my co-founder Pete at Trulia to build Trulia for residential real estate. It was a very opaque market. It felt like as a buyer, seller, renter, potential buyer, seller, renter it's like you're in a room without lights and the professionals have all the information and there's a crazy information asymmetry, which usually means that as a yeah. user, you're kind of screwed. And that kind of pulled us in. Now I have many different reasons for founding Verda and focusing on type 2 diabetes reversal, but I would say there's a lot of the same kind of stuff happening in US healthcare, very opaque, you know, pharmaceutical pricing, cost of any treatment, and it's not really consumer driven. So I would agree with you. It's there's a yeah. lot of parallels. Yeah. So, all right, let's just dive into the topic of the day. So starting a company is really, really hard, even in the absolute best of times. How would you, as someone who has started companies in the best of times and run them through the worst of times, describe kind of starting and running a company in a time of economic uncertainty like today? Yeah. Well, first I would say, kind of repeat what you said, which is, Pretty much by definition, building a company from scratch is a mission impossible. It is very, very, very hard because it's sort of like a tiny little flower at the bottom of, I don't know, a rainforest where small trees, big trees and mid-sized trees and everything else is trying to kill you. So the default expected outcome for any startup is a failure. That's just a statistical fact. So uh, I think it's very important for every founder to realize that as rewarding and fantastic and awesome as the journey might be, it is very, very, very hard. To your specific question, starting a company in a downturn. So we started truly at 2004, 2005. It was definitely a downturn. Verta Health, I kind of started in... The market was picking up 2014, yeah. 15, but now in a downturn. I would say in early stages, there are more benefits to starting in a downturn than there are handicaps, just based on my personal experience. And I'll just mention a few. One is 
when there's less noise, less marketing noise, uh, it's it's actually easier to get attention to substance and something that's working. So that's sort of a one thing. And that applies to commercialization and hiring people and even fundraising. Mm. The second thing is you're kind of forced to make the business truly work. And what I mean by that is you have to focus on cash efficiency, unit economics, and sort of business 101 early when it's hard to find money, when the capital is tight. And then the last thing I would say is, I mentioned recruiting briefly, but sort of team building. This is a cliche, but having now started three companies, it all comes down to people. And the first 10, 20, 30 people that you hire are so crucial and critical. And in a sort of a boom market, there's a lot of fair weather startup people and and founders. But when it's downturn, it's the true believers only who even consider joining a startup. And that's actually highly, highly beneficial for the early years of, of a startup. So if I had a choice, I would start my company in a downturn. Hmm. Absolutely. For those who are kind of in that position of they've started a company but haven't fundraised yet, what are your thoughts around kind of best positioning? Should you wait until you get more traction or just try to go out there and and begin talking to investors? Yeah, I'm sure one can argue either way. But again, all three companies that I've started, so I started one 2000 just before the dot com boom crash. We got some money before then truly at then Albert Hill. This has been venture funded companies, all venture funded companies. So I have raised a ton of money, seed, series A, that whole thing. So that is kind of the experience I've had. So based on this three time experience, a couple of thoughts. Again, this is my personal experience, may not be the perfect advice, but I would say one delay the initial fundraising as long as you can. It'd be counterintuitive. And why do I say that? Once you take outside money, kind of everything is on the clock and you will start spending that money, whether that's hiring just one employee or whatnot, and then you have a burn rate. If you can iterate anything, even the initial seed of a product or idea or product market fit, whatever it is that you do without outside funding, you have the ultimate flexibility and the clock is not ticking in terms of burn, whether you don't fund it at all or put a little bit of your own money. So that would be one. I personally would say delay raising outside capital as much as long as you can. Um, And then the second thing is once you take money, this again may be counterintuitive, I would say take as little money as, as, as you can, uh, especially in the very early days for the same reasons that I mentioned for sort of delaying fundraising. So that, that would be my, my advice. And then it's a whole different story once you have something that's truly working and, and you know that there's the initial strong signs of product market fit, then it's yeah. a different story. And if you want to raise outside capital, it can truly be transformative that you can hire people and accelerate getting customers and so forth. But that period of idea and actual product market fit, that's sort of a death valley. And I personally have found that it's better not to have a lot of capital sloshing around while you're in that sort of no woman's land or no man's land. 
And is that because you don't want too much cash that you can be cash conscious? Or is that because you don't want to give too much of your company up? Well, certainly both are important, but I would say when trying to find a product market fit, it's very uncertain. It may be that it takes 30 days or it may take 18 months. And when you take outside capital and before the company truly becomes profitable, which may be many years down the road, it's the venture model is built for sort of linear or exponential scaling. And if you suddenly have like a 12 month delay, it usually means that everything falls apart. And just to give you an example from a Verda experience, we operated the company more or less for like a year before we truly took outside money a seat round. And I'm very happy we did that because we kind of changed our business model once or twice and went forward and backwards and sideways and all kinds of things before we really yeah. knew what we would need to build. And if you're on the clock, you've taken, I don't know, 500,000 of seed funding from real seed investors. It's It gets very complicated when you're running out of cash and you're supposed to raise Series A, but you don't have anything to show. And what do you do? You kind of go hibernation mode. And it's easy to do that when it's just you and your co-founder or co-founders. So it's has been really hard for founders who are in this, what you call the no, no woman's, no man's land, especially those that are getting close to the end of their runway and might need to raise more and are kind of looking at the market and looking at their business model and saying, oh shit, I'm not there yet. It is extremely stressful. It is, I mean, even founders that I know that are otherwise doing well are extremely stressed right now. What are some just practical tips that you have for fellow founders for maintaining your mental health during these inherently stressful times? Yeah, absolutely. That, that is a good question. And maybe first thing I should say, I'm not a medical doctor. I don't play one on the internet. I don't play one on podcasts. So if, if, if you okay. need true medical disclaimer. Help, talk to uh, a, a real I, Maybe that's the advice. Yeah, uh, get a therapist is a great piece of advice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but I do have experiences in that, you know, I've been, again, I'm going to age myself, but I, I've basically been an entrepreneur for 20 years, pretty much nonstop. Mm. And it's been very, very hard uh, for 20 years nonstop, but here I am breathing and talking and I haven't had a complete fall apart for whatever reason. So so at least I have sort of an N equals one experience of getting close to the edge, but not going over the edge. And so maybe there's some things that I can share from my my personal experience. There's, there's sort of a number of things that I, I do. And do you want me to sort of run through yeah, we'd love to hear that. Um, yes, yes. So, in in no particular order, let me start from uh, this is a mental trick. So, agency is one thing. So, literally, I repeat to myself when I have to do something hard or unexpected things happen, which is all the time. Is I remind myself, I say, I choose to do this because XYZ and avoid saying, oh my God, do I need to go for, you know, fundraising trip on a Saturday and I have two toddlers, little kids at home. That's just a little mental trick. But as mm -hmm. founders, certainly we are choosing to do things. It's not like we were forced to. And so that's a little mental trick, but I found that it gives me tremendous agency. And it's not easy. Oftentimes I go, oh my God, seriously? 
do I need to deal with this HR crap? And then I remind myself, okay, wait a second. I choose to do this because we want to reverse diabetes on a million people and I'm yeah. in a unique position to do this. So that's kind of, that's the one. It's a framing, a reframing. Yeah, fra- framing. So, so that's yeah. one. The second one is a totally different direction, but the foundation of metabolic health, meaning health in general, is to me, it's 95% the solution. And that to me is sleep, nutrition, and exercise. And hopefully I don't sound like a grandmother or mother repeating that, but it is so important. I notice in myself, if I have one night I haven't slept optimally, I'm like one third more likely to be (laughs) upset and crumpy and whatnot. And, you know, I just try to do that all the time. So nutrition, sleep, and exercise has been a huge part of my life. And I think one of the reasons I kind of haven't totally fallen apart over the last 20 years uh, and I think that's underappreciated. For some people, it's almost, well, few people these days, but it used to be batch of honor to pull all-nighters and not sleep. And, yeah. Uh, it's, no, 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 no. You don't want to do that. You need to treat yourself like a professional athlete if you try to be a leader of a high-growth company, yeah. in my opinion. So that's uh, the second one. Hmm. And then let's see. I think the third one that's been very helpful for me is that I try to cultivate multiple kind of, quote unquote, identities inside my own head. And what I mean by that is it's very easy as a founder, especially if you are not like you don't have a partner and kids and work from family, let's say in your your 20s, for example, not that age matters, to feel like the company is everything you have. That is you, that's your identity, that is everything. And in fact, I think for some founders, that's almost like a badge of honor. Like, oh my God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep everything. The company is all, everything I have, and I'm proud of it. That's very bad. It works when everything's going up and to the right, and it, that never lasts. And so for me, you know, I have two little kids, five and seven-year-old girls. So one identity is being a parent, father. I have an identity of being athlete. I hang out, exercise, compete in cycling and stuff like that with people who couldn't care less what I do for a living. And, and so I found that very helpful. So if you can on a daily basis have perspective that, yeah, I kind of do different things. And the one thing, actually nothing defines me, but the one thing, the profession doesn't sort of exclusively define you is super helpful. And then the, the let's see, what else? The two, two more things. Hopefully I don't speak too long. You can stop me. No, uh, keep going. The fourth one is having a peer group of other leaders, founders, CEOs, I found super helpful. So I've been a member of YPO, so Young Presidents Organization for the last 13 years now, since actually 14 years now, since 2008. And so one example that we have is, is a forum, which is highly confidential you know, eight to 10 people, the same people meet for four hours every month. We talk about personal life, family, professional. That's been, I'm exaggerating to say lifesaver, but pretty much to me. And uh, I also have an executive coach. And so having peers and people who can relate to you and help, I, I found super duper helpful. So that would be one. And then the last one I mentioned, which we can, have a whole new podcast about that. So I don't want to talk about too much, but to me, just meditation, you know, I've done a number of 10 day, four day, one day silent meditation retreats. And I try to meditate like five, 10 minutes every day. Just understanding how the mind works is just a total game changer. Like honestly, that should be taught at school to first graders. 
So anyways, that's a long laundry list of things, but I don't think you can just kind of show up and hope for the best. It's very, it is not normal to try to build the company from scratch. It's not normal. And so if you don't do all these things to kind of fortify yourself, it's expected that you fall apart. Yeah. I think, um, you know, when I was in my twenties, I helping run rock health, I thought my superpower was that I was young. I could operate on very little sleep and I didn't have children. And so I just put in a lot of time. I mean, at the office seven days a week, late at night. And I thought that that was my advantage. And, you know, certainly there were some benefits to it, but my relationship suffered. Um, I didn't build the friendships that I should have been building on. My personal life was not that fun. Um, you know, I was hanging out more with my coworkers than my spouse. And, you know, I think now I I'm, I'm in the opposite part of my career where I'm spending more time on other things than on work. And I find that I'm actually, every hour I put into work is, is far more productive hour. I'm not just doing it to, to show up and show everyone that I can hustle. (laughs) And so I, I find myself a little bit more balanced and productive, but I certainly fell into the Silicon Valley trap that many, many people fall into, which is feeling the need to hustle and work late and, and just kind of show that you can do it because you don't have to, you don't have to, you don't have to sacrifice your personal life, um, to be successful. It is going to be a lot of hours though, but it doesn't need to be seven days a week. You can give yourself a day or two in the weekend off. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned the word productivity. I, 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 I find that it's there's like a lot of productivity porn in Silicon Valley, and it's almost like the a religion. Yeah. People's sure, you know, looking for their self worth to be highly productive, and you know, I, I hear people saying like, "I wonder if I can have kids because I'm going to be less productive." And I'm like, "Wait a second, is there going to be <laughs> something on your tombstone when you die, like the most productive woman or man in the world?" Like. It, it literally is like a religion. Yeah, um, it really is. And, and so you have to be able to see yeah. outside of that. Now, there are facts that, again, I go, get, go back to this. If you want to be best in the world or close to best in the world or build a company from scratch or be a professional athlete, it's not like a part-time job. You, you have to invest the yeah. effort and the focus. But it doesn't mean that's the only thing you do. Professional athletes don't pull all-nighters before Olympic Games, for example. Uh, it does mean that you need to choose to say no to a lot of other things. Um, but again, you have to choose and want that. Um, and I, I think that is necessary. It's it's hard yeah. to, there's very few people who can be a CEO of three companies. I'm not going to make a reference to anyone <laughs> trying to do that. But <laughs> yeah. but the reality is that doing Ask hard the employees how they like it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll be right back after the break. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. 
Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence. When you love what you do and it's fun doing it, it sometimes is hard to break out of the work mode. And so my next question for you, and this is something that I have not figured out. So I hope that you have the secret for me. And I hope it's not meditation because I haven't been able to get meditation to work for me. But here's the question. How do you get work off your mind? Like taking a shower where you're not coming up with a list of things that you need to do for work, not being at the playground, watching your kid, but like in the back of your mind, replaying an incident with HR, et cetera. How do you actually like turn off work so you're not thinking about it all the time when you're doing something that you're obsessed with and love? Yeah, I, it's, it's not easy, uh, but I, I do have a solution. <laughs> Okay. It's one ninety nine a month. Subscribe to my no, just kidding. <laughs> um, I um I, I do think it's very, very, very important. And again, for somebody it may be like a badge of honor to never switch on work. And this is kind of part of the productivity porn that people say, Oh, I'm thinking about all the time. Last thing I think is is my work when I go to bed and when I wake up, like, no, that is not good. And most of the many of the things that your brain solves. It, it happens in the background anyway. Well, I, I have two ways of doing that. Um, and yes, the second one is, is what you don't want to hear. The first one is, it is possible to fill the brain with something else. And the examples that I would give to me, one is sports. When you exercise hard enough and do like above threshold intervals when you're about to throw up or whatever, running or cycling or something, that is one way to do it for me. So you basically force your brain to be occupied with something else yeah. um, at the level that it just cannot think about anything else. And then sports is one thing for me. It's, it's If you go easy jogging or hiking, yes, you can be very distracted. But if you do something very, very hard and dangerous or whatnot, even like mountain yeah. biking, you, you kind of force yourself out. So that, that's one way to do it. It's probably the easiest for most people. and so <laughs> Okay, but what if you're not athletic? Is there for like me, a... For me, yeah, for me as well. Like a puzzle um, or a game or something? That's less, I think, in, um, less athletic version of this? Yeah, for some people it's art, it's music. Um, I, I, I'll give another example that's kind of related to sports, but because I grew up in Finland, everyone has sauna or sauna, as we say in Finnish. That is one place where you're sweating and you're super hot. And then mm. you, I don't know, take a freezing cold shower, jump your leg, jump into a lake, and go back to sauna. That's sort of one of those ways as well. So if anybody wants to try okay. that, and people who play music, guitar, piano, violin, whatever, you have you have to concentrate a lot. So anyway, so that's kind of the one group that works for me. And then the second one is, I, I again, I'm not kind of meditation solves everything, but understanding the nature of the mind and how the brain has a life of its own and being able to just observe a thought come to my mind. And the same thing happens to me all the time. Like you mentioned, like, oh my God, I said that to this investor. How stupid was I? I wasn't able to raise the round. And they said, no, I should have said this and that. Noticing those thoughts usually isn't the biggest problem. The biggest problem is that we get attached to them and then we narrate them for three hours in our brain. 
Oh, yeah. And so if you can meditate and realize, oh, oh there's a thought coming about, I don't know, a customer or producting or internal HR or conversation you had with an investor where you embarrassed yourself. If you can notice that and just let it slide rather than start narrating that for four hours on a Saturday morning, that is possible. That is absolutely possible. And that is one of the things where meditation helps. And so if you can do that on demand, it's very liberating. And so those of your listeners who are sort of software developers, which I used to do way back when, it's kind of like debugging your brain in a runtime mode. So if you write code, you can put it into a debugging mode and you can see it run the code line by line. If you can get to that point in your mind that you can see the thoughts come in and you can kind of observe them from a distance, if you will, yeah. It gives you the option to say, well, that's an interesting thought, but I'm just going to let it slide and not going to start the three-hour self-narration that's just going to create misery on a Saturday or Sunday when it's completely right. irrelevant and unproductive. Oh, on, on meditation, like where do you start to learn and how long does it take until it it's working for you? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, isn't this so something I, that takes I, I, yeah. years to master? I don't think necessarily. Everybody's journey is different. And I'm not a meditation master, but I, I will briefly mention that I probably my lowest point, sort of happiness wise, was uh, 2012 when my company truly went public. Mm-hmm. This may sound so again counterintuitive, like, oh, company's successful, we make a bunch of money. And I wasn't working full time, like, wow, that's like a dream come true. And now you can do everything. But it was kind of miserable. And I was wondering, why is that? How's that possible? Because this is kind of what everybody tells you, like, you work hard, and you make bunch of money, and you're happily ever after. But surprise, surprise, doesn't usually happen. And so I realized that there's probably something I can learn about my mind. And uh, actually, with my wife, um, we went to a 10-day silent meditation retreat in Taiwan, of all the places. It's easier to be silent when you don't speak Mandarin Chinese. So <laughs> so that that was my start of my meditation hobby, exercise, I, yeah. I would say. And that was very helpful for me. Now, I don't think you have to go to a 10-day silent to, to learn some of the basics. But yeah, so yeah. I, I've been kind of meditating ever after. But that was a very helpful kickstart. Yeah. Rather than trying to, you know, download an app and listen to it for 15 minutes and realize that it did nothing. Yeah. Might be something to try before having kids. I can't imagine doing that 100%. now with a child, 100%. but yeah, 100%. something that um so you're not the first person to recommend meditation to me. Um, but now you're you're getting me more interested in thinking about that as a a good way to quiet my mind. <laughs> so one thing I wanted to talk about is just the weight of pressure that you have constantly as a leader in a fast growing company. People need you and constantly need you. And you're constantly, I say you're a firefighter, you're constantly fighting fires. And I once heard pressure described as a privilege and to not look at it as a negative thing, but kind of as a neutral factor that will determine kind of the growth of your organization. How have you kind of gotten to your position with just the immense pressure that there is being a CEO of a a unicorn? And what sort of tips do you have 
with dealing with pressure and specifically situations that are just really difficult where there's a lot at stake? In some ways, I could kind of repeat the same couple of things I mentioned, what I do to be able to withstand and absorb the pressures that unquestionably are thrown your way at unexpected times, but obviously I'm not going to repeat the, the same things. But I'd say those four or five fundamentals that I, I described are the basis for me. And um, but let me take this to a slightly different direction around the agency. And this may sound like a very roundabout way, but I think you probably know or remember this one kind of a crazy adventure that I did right before starting Health was rowing across the Pacific Ocean with my <laughs> yes. wife un unsupported. Yes. Yeah, yes, rowing and unsupported in a rowboat from California to Hawaii, which took, um, let's see, 45 days and Four, three hours. Days, so it was yeah. a long trip. The reason I, I checked this, in, I checked in yeah. almost <laughs> every day on your blog. I, it was so exciting to watch. Wait, when, when are they going to die? Lucky, luckily, it did, did not happen. I but just the reason couldn't I'm, believe you yeah. could do it. <laughs> um, me neither. Um, but again, it proves that it's important to marry the right person. The, the reason I mentioned this story is I was not yet sure if I want to start another company at the time when we pushed off with the boat. Verda was kind of in the making, but I was very much hesitating for the reasons you just mentioned, because I knew how uncomfortable and painful it can be and will be to be a founder CEO of a fast growth company, whether it's successful or unsuccessful. It just is all the time. And I was very hesitant to do that. It's almost like a slightly chronic pain and you get out of the pain and you know that, oh, if you eat too much candy, you're going to get the chronic pain back. It's like, well, I'm not going to, I'm definitely not going to do that. And the rowing obviously was very uncomfortable physically to row 16 hours a day. And during that row, I can't explain how it happened, but it hit me. I really internalized that the periods in my life when I have felt uncomfortable, not too much, not like a masochistic way or to the point that you are falling apart, but like pushing against the comfort or discomfort, those have been the most rewarding and gratifying periods in my life. It's like leaving Finland and coming to America and not knowing anything was honestly kind of scary. Starting Trulia and building that company with amazing people over 10 years was hard, but it was, it was kind of gratifying. And the role was the same thing. And so I realized that this kind of uh, discomfort and pushing against your beyond your comfort zone a little bit is actually a wonderful way of living your life as long as it's not too much. And so that's been an important reminder to me when I have these moments, which happen all the time, practically daily, that I have agency and I chose to do this and I'm growing and I'm doing something. Obviously, reversing diabetes is unquestionably a good thing. And so that's one thing that's been very helpful for me to ground myself in. I'm doing this for a reason. Momentary discomfort is often just a sign that I'm trying to do something that is hard and I'm learning. So that's been very helpful for me. Yeah. And then all the other things that I already mentioned, like having that perspective that this is not yeah. all there is, surrounding yourself with peers and yada, yada, yada. It gets easier. I mean, the first time I had to let someone go, I 
stayed up all night the night before. I had just a knot in my stomach. I was so, I, I was just so upset. I was about to not do it, even though it was the right thing for the company, just because I didn't want to have to do it. And then I did it. And, you know, with the help of HR and lawyer and, uh, you know, did it the right way. And then it was over. And then I like took a deep breath and I was like, oh, I can do hard things. <laughs> it's not, mm-hmm. You know, it's almost sometimes the anticipation of the unknown. And then once you kind of get through it, you build that muscle. And as you get further and further in your career, you realize those sort of conversations, they're still hard, but they're normal and you'll get through it and everyone will be okay. Yeah, that, yeah, I think that's 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 a great point. It's like anything. It's like public speaking. I certainly yeah. grew up as a kind of a geek introvert and this idea, but like I hated public speaking in any shape or form. But and yeah, you don't become a Tony Robbins if if you weren't built for that. But if you do it a hundred times in I don't know three hundred days and you're forced to, then suddenly it's like okay, it's fine. Like that's the last thing you're yeah. worrying about. And it's the same thing in all these motions that you have to go through in, in building a company. And you mentioned one there. It's sadly, you have to depart ways with employees, whether that's a big layoff or one-offs. And when you go through those many times over, it, it does become easier. And you realize that it's kind of your job description and you can get over it. But some of these things never get like very easy. And one of the things is... Telling someone that you have to depart ways, it's, I don't think anybody likes that, but it's part of the job description. Just by nature, I avoid conflict and I like to be liked. And so kind of getting over that and and recognizing that about myself, uh, which is, you know, through coaching and therapy has helped me kind of realize that you have to want it more than you're afraid of it. And you have to be brave and do things that are uncomfortable because it's, it is part of the job. And if you want to be successful, you have to do the job. So, um, but it's hard, but it's hard because then you, you know, that someone's going to be upset and we all want to be liked. Well, I certainly, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's one of the thing I, things I'm working on personally, the, to not take things too personally, obviously. Yeah. You, you want to be empathetic and sympathetic and it's, it's okay to feel Uh, what others might be feeling but when you're a leader you have to know when to take take things personally and when to just realize that you just have to move forward and statistically when you have hundreds of employees I always tell to my my managers I'm like just roughly think about it this way there's a one percent chance that a person has a crazy crisis on a given day so if you have 100 employees just back of the envelope, you can say that every day somebody is going to have a crazy crisis and don't take it personally. Uh, it just yeah. means that when you have a large enough team, you're kind of dealing with these things all the time. Yeah. Kind of going back to our earlier conversation, you said you thought it was a good time to start a company. What do you think about specifically in healthcare and where we are as an industry today? I think I would decouple the f- capital markets and the funding cycle from evolution of healthcare as an industry. And what I mean by that is, Mm. I think there's so much to be done and improved in the US healthcare, and that's probably not going to change for another many, I don't know, never, I guess. There's always room for innovation. There's so much room for innovation, both from a kind of structural and cost 
perspective as well as you know new technology whether that's digital or or biotech uh that it's always a good time or now is a good time i should say to, to start a company in healthcare absolutely 100 percent and you didn't ask like where's the opportunity i think there's opportunity everywhere so that's that and then on the funding cycle there? side oh i think it's everywhere i yeah yeah i it's uh and and by the way i think the Often the most successful companies are built when somebody starts something that just seems like doesn't even make any sense. And we are like, people like me are like, well, that doesn't make any sense. I've been in healthcare for seven, eight years and like, that doesn't make any sense. It's almost like we started Verda addressing diabetes 2014. People like, wait a second, there's like a thousand diabetes companies and we've almost already at scale. Like there's nothing to be done. And that's actually the best time to do something transformative, innovative, disruptive, when nobody else is kind of looking. So, so that's on the healthcare side. And then the capital market cycles, I honestly think about, for the most part, them as like a weather. You want to make yourself a weatherproof, whether it's sunny or rainy, you can go and walk outside and hike and run and whatever. Make yourself a weatherproof. And the economic cycles come and go. And I, I wouldn't time companies starting based on those cycles. But that said, I again, I already mentioned, I do feel that downturn is a better time for yeah. a very, very early stage company than the boom times. Yeah. It's almost like living in San Francisco and you have to wear layers. You have to be prepared for yeah, it all. Yeah, yeah. You, you want to make yourself weatherproof. And then once you get further, obviously, big in like where we are now, you know, raise hundreds of millions of dollars and large scale cash flows and revenues. And then you have to be much more conscious of the capital markets in that, like if you need capital, like when you go fundraise, like it sort of plays more into how much you focus on profitability versus top line growth. But I always say it's when you're starting, at the end of the day, you're trying to build a product that solves a problem. And it, that just doesn't, it's no different whether money is easy or hard to come by. Amazing. Well, any parting words for our audience? Well, one thing that I always love to promote is uh, starting a company. And I just promote entrepreneurship. And sometimes in the Silicon Valley, it gets a bad rap. But at the end of the day, it's the innovators, people who, who throw themselves into the ring, who move the world forward. They create jobs. They create tax dollars. They solve problems, improve human lives. So I'm a huge proponent of uh, people taking that risk and starting something. And if you're debating whether now's the right time, the only time better than today is yesterday. And mm. particularly if you're coming out of school, grad school or undergrad, and you, you know, like, oh my God, maybe I should work for a big company for five years before I start. Here's my advice. You only become more risk averse as time goes by. The more kids, the kids, the lifestyle. Yeah. So now is the best and the easiest time, like absolutely. So if you're just coming out of school, say grad school, now is the best time to start a company. You will never, ever be this open to taking risk in, in the future. Yeah. And hungry for success. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. Well, Sammy, thank you so much. I know you are extremely busy running Verda and we appreciate your time today. Yeah. Thank you so much. Very much enjoyed. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Heart of Healthcare. 
If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our host is Hallie Tecco. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.